Judges 17 is our text. If you'd open there or navigate on your device, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Judges 17, verses 1 through 13. The topic, Micah appoints his own disqualified son and then an unqualified Levite to be his household priest. The title of our message, Fraudulent Priests and Where to Find Them. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we've gathered together, it's in your name. Hopefully for your glory, Lord. We want to bring glory to you. We don't always know what that means, but it's a desire that you've put deep within our heart. That our thoughts and then our actions, Lord, would, would glorify you. and That others would see you in us and through us. That they'd be uh, drawn to you, Lord. To your love and to your grace. And that you would use our lives in profound and powerful ways. And to that end, Lord, we pray that you would teach us through your word, encourage us, and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. At the Council of Elrond, convened to determine what to do with the one ring of power, Boromir immediately dismisses the opinion of Strider, saying, what would a ranger know of this matter? Legolas steps forward, chastising Boromir, revealing that Strider was no mere ranger. He was Aragorn, the son of Arathorn, heir to the throne of Gondor, and Boromir's rightful king. Angered and taken aback, Boromir answers, Gondor has no king, Gondor needs no king. Now the major note of the remaining five chapters in the book of Judges is stated in verse six. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This phrase will repeat in chapter 21. In between we will be told twice more that Israel had no king. When the author of Judges, who we believe to be Samuel, says there was no king, it didn't only mean that it was before the time of the monarchy that would begin with Saul. He meant that the Israelites had rejected God from governing over them. Way back in Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, Moses wrote, Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. And so God was their king. But refusing to submit to him, they did instead what was right in their own eyes. It was a disaster, as we've seen from the previous chapters in Judges, but it's going to produce one of the most sordid episodes, not just in the Bible, but in the history of mankind. In these closing pages of Judges, we'll see wife abuse, homosexuality, gang rape leading to murder, injustice, brother killing brother, kidnapping, and the mutilation of a corpse. It's a terrible, terrible uh, time in Israel's history. As we work through these final chapters and are thankful we're not in them, we nevertheless want to discover honest application to our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Since he is our king and is coming again to reign over the kingdom of God on the earth, we can ask a couple of pertinent questions. Number one, what does your household reveal about who is king? And number two, what does your household of faith reveal about who is king? take a look first of all at our own households in verses 1 through 6. Now there's a couple of things we need to know about chapters 17 through 21. First, they are not chronological, but they are in fact a prequel. They happened before the heroes emerged in the previous chapters. And second, they largely focus on the activities of two Levites. Levites were helpers to priests. When Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, the sons of Levi were the only Israelite tribe that were assigned cities, but were not allowed to be landowners because we read, the Lord God of Israel himself is their inheritance. So they got no inheritance of land 
They were simply assigned cities that they would live in. They were to be supported by the sacrifices and offerings presented to the Lord at the tabernacle. Levites served on a rotation. When not serving at the tabernacle, they were supposed to be teaching the word of God and counseling in their assigned cities. The two Levites highlighted in these chapters are total failures, indicating that a good part of the problem in those days was the religious authorities failing to preach God's word. You know, the pew is often under attack as folks tell you how badly you fall short in things like your giving and your serving. You don't hear that much here. In fact, you don't hear it at all here. But uh, other churches, uh, it's an easy reaction to get people to feel bad about how lame we are as Christians sitting in the pew. In fact, the pulpit needs to be examined as well and ought to be examined more since it is a calling that comes with great responsibility. And so the people we've seen were blowing it, the Israelites, and they're going to do it worse and worse. But a lot of that blame comes from the top. Uh, The priests and especially the Levites were not doing their job, as we'll see here in a moment. And they were not teaching the people God's word. Ignorance isn't always an excuse, but it it certainly contributed to the downfall of the nation. So verse 1, now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. You get the feeling that a similar story could have been told about any of the Jews. What we will hear about Micah and his household was typical of the conditions throughout Israel. This was an average household. Details might be different, but it gives you a feeling, a kind of a slice of life of what it was like. Verse 2, he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. Now, right off, you're shaking your head at their behavior. The adult son was a thief, and not a petty thief either. He stole what would have been a fortune in those days. He seemed to have no conscience about it. It was only when he heard mommy utter a curse on the thief that he came clean. I'm guessing mom knew all along it was her son who stole the money. Once she flushed him out, she uttered a blessing to cancel out the curse. And so it's a very unusual household, curses and blessings. We'll talk about superstition in a minute. They were caught up in curses and anti-curses as if they meant anything. Are you at all superstitious? I think most of us would say no. Would you live at 666 Main Street? A few years ago, I had that little uh, Scion XB that my wife called the Blueberry Clown Car. You remember that car? I loved it. It was just that that electric blue. It was actually called Voodoo Blue. But uh, it was a numbered vehicle. It was a special edition. And mine was like 668 or something like that. And I thought, oh, man, what am I going to do if my car is car number 666? I mean, am I really going to drive it? I mean, I actually thought that. Not that I thought anything would happen, but I thought people would think it's weird. Does it bother you if the elevator has a button for the 13th floor? Do you, know, do you overlook, when you get an elevator, do you see if it notices, if, if they list a 13th floor? Because a lot of buildings don't have a 13th floor. Well, they do, but they don't call it the 13th floor because it's bad luck. So do you think there are any Christian superstitions? Well, of course there are. All you have to do is find somebody driving down the road with a rosary hanging off of their uh, rearview mirror, and you've got a Christian superstition. But some actually seem spiritual. There's a famous saying about the Bible. I may have even said this in times past. 
Uh, it goes like this. Sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Have you ever heard that? Well, you have now. But it's, it's been around for a long time. Ministers pull it out of their bag of tricks every now and then. How do you explain it then when a Bible teacher, often in his prime, falls into sin? Surely he has been in the book studying. A statement like that reduces the Bible and Bible reading and Bible study to a superstitious charm. In other words, as long as I read the Bible, I will be safe from sin. And, and that's not true at all. It's, it's just sometimes we need to hear what's said and think, is that even true? And it's not. It's a superstition. Here's a more subtle version I came across. The gospel brings man to God. Devotions keep him close to God. Daily devotions, that is. It's one of many such sayings that elevate the importance of having daily devotions. This is a tough one because I absolutely want to encourage you to have daily devotional time with Jesus. There's no question about it. With that said, ask yourself, why am I having devotions? Let me give you an illustration. Do you have a daily time with your wife or your husband, if you're married? If you do, why is that? Is it because you love them and you'd rather be with them than anyone else or anywhere else? Or is it to maintain the bare minimum standard of communication? Or worse, because you want to keep him or her happy so they'll continue to bless you by performing their part in the marriage? Have devotions with Jesus, not to get anything out of it, not to gain anything, not to progress, but just because you want to spend time with the Lord. One blogging pastor wrote, any object, behavior, or belief that you invest with the power to save you or to give you good things apart from the power of the living God, it's a pious talisman and is driving you away from the gospel. I'd be willing to say that we all have subtle spiritual superstitions we just need to ask the Lord to show us what they are. So far, nothing remotely spiritual has taken place in Micah's household. Everyone's actions and reactions are outside the context of the Old Testament law. They were making this stuff up as they went, as if they had no standard to live by. And so, verse 3, when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son. So make a carved image and a molded image, therefore I will return it to you. Micah stole the silver and he gave it back. The law required Micah add a fifth to what he had stolen. There's no record of him doing that. The theft cost him nothing. There were no consequences. And in fact, he benefited from it as we read next that mom indicated she had set it aside to make two household idols for her son. And thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, two separate things, and they were in the house of Micah. Now, I'm not good at math, you know that, but it seems that the silver mom returned to Micah was 900 shekels short of the original amount. We conclude from this that Micah had learned his thieving ways at home from his mother, and so she says, hey, I'm going to dedicate the 1,100 shekels to, to you so that you can have, as the head of the household, you can have a shrine with two images. And then she gives him 200 shekels to do it with, keeping 900. And so the man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. The Jews were supposed to worship at one central location, at the tabernacle, 
where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were. The tabernacle was in Gilgal for the first 14 years capturing and dividing the land. And so when Joshua came into the land, they set up the tabernacle at this place called Gilgal, and it was there for about 14 years. It was then moved to Shiloh for the next 369 years. Shiloh was in the territory of Ephraim. It therefore wasn't even a long hazardous journey for Micah to worship as he prescribed, uh, as prescribed by the law. In other words, you might think, well, it was so far, uh, you know, I, I can see where they would start thinking that they, they might want to have little shrines at home or something like that. But in this case, it wasn't. He could easily have gotten to the tabernacle pretty much any time he wanted to, to worship the Lord. Uh, it was not a hardship whatsoever. He just decided to do his own thing. Now, I, I don't want to belabor it, but this would be a good time to check my attendance at gatherings of the church. We shouldn't make attendance a superstition, and, and sometimes it is. I think if you attend church more often, God will bless you more, uh, and, and in that sense, it's superstitious. But we are, as believers, exhorted to not forsake gathering together as often as possible, especially as we see that we are living in the end times. And it is a characteristic of the end times that professing Christians will shy away from uh, belonging to a church and, and going to the meetings of the church. And you probably know friends and family who uh, are very lackadaisical about their church attendance, uh, maybe haven't been to church for years, and they say, well, I don't, I don't need to go to church. You know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And, I love the Lord and those kinds of things. And, you know, uh, that's true to an extent, but it's also true that you should not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. Uh, and so I can say that to you because you're here. So nobody, nobody can get bummed out by this exhortation, thinking, well, who are you talking to? I'm talking about people that are not here and stuff. And, so, and there, is, there is kind of an attack now. Uh, now, that, now that we have the interweb, I like to call it, uh, you know, everybody's an expert. Uh, and you, when you look at the church and uh, stories about the church and writing about the church, everybody's against the church, right? All Christians are, you know, you have to have an angle. And so it, it, they're against formal churches and church buildings and all that. And the church, we're just the church out in the world. And you don't need to do anything other than be a Christian and all that. And, and just all of that is just so foreign to the New Testament. It, it, and even just foreign to just logical thinking. Here's what happens. You're not a Christian. You get saved, and then you want to be around like-minded people who are saved like you, and you want to learn. From, and you, then you find out you have gifts, they have gifts, you minister to them, they minister to you. There's nothing more normal than Christians gathering together in a semi or a formal setting, just like you see in the New Testament. Uh, Peter, when he got up on the day of Pentecost and, and preached, and then all those Jews who got saved said, we're just going to stay here and learn about Jesus. And that's what they did. And so that's the most normal thing in the world is for there to be a church, a group of people that gets together on a regular basis and uh, gets ministered to from the word and ministers one to another. And so uh, don't, don't get, don't get um, laid out by that kind of stuff. Your friends that are not going to church, they're just wrong. They just really are. Now, I'm not saying they're going to hell. They're not if they're Christians. But they're just wrong and they're missing out. And you know what? They're selfish because they're not in a place where they can really help others and um, you know, uh, use the gifts that God has given them. 
Uh, they're like dismembered parts of your body. You didn't leave part of your body at home this morning. If your hand said, hey, I don't really want to go to church this morning. I hurt. I got a blister from yard work yesterday. I'm staying home. You either go or you don't go. The blister, you know, doesn't, doesn't uh, dictate and stuff. And so that's, that's kind of an aside on that. Now, priests must be descended from Aaron. The high priest wore the ephod, kind of outer vest with precious stones on it, representing the tribes of Israel as he ministered before the Lord. Making your own ephod and household idols, worshiping at a home shrine, appointing your own Ephraimite son to be your priest, these were heresies of the highest order. Several commentators point out that Micah and his mother managed to break seven of the Ten Commandments without even leaving the house. The son didn't honor his mother. Instead, he stole from her and lied about it. He coveted the silver, then he took it. According to Colossians, covetousness is idolatry. Then he lied about the whole enterprise until the curse scared him into confessing. Thus he broke the fifth, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments. He broke the first and second commandments by having a shrine of false. According to Proverbs 38 and 9, then uh, when he stole the silver, he broke the third commandment and took the name of the Lord in vain. For her part, Micah's mother broke the first two commandments by making an idol and encouraging her son to maintain a private shrine in his home. I'm sure you've heard some Bible teachers say of them, they're the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Now, behind that clever statement is this fact. The Word of God is objective, not subjective. Here's a quote that better explains what I mean. Biblical truth is objective. It is true by itself. It is true whether or not we feel that it's true. It is true whether or not it has been validated by someone's experience. It is true because God says it is true. It is wholly true, and it is true down to the smallest jot and tittle. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The world sees the Bible at best as being subjective. If they read something in it they disagree with, they go with their own sin-inspired wisdom. They, they see no reason or necessity to allow the Word of God to rule their lives. They don't see it as an objective truth. We should expect non-believers to ignore and oppose the Bible. Book of Romans describes them as those who do not like to retain God in their knowledge. And so not wanting to have God in their knowledge, they're certainly going to re uh, reject what God has said. Now more and more, however, it is professing Christians who are finding God's Word as if it was subjective. The topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is the most obvious example. Now, I don't mean to pick on marriages all the time. It's just that we all can relate to it. And there's nothing more fundamental to a talk on the household than to assess the current state of marriage. Now, God's word is clear. Marriage is to be monogamous, heterosexual, and it's to last as long as you both shall live. That is the basic objective truth by which all things regarding marriage must be measured. Things like polygamy and homosexual marriage are subjective. It is people doing what is right in their own eyes, contrary to what is objectively right in the Bible. The biblical grounds for a divorce are somewhat narrow, sexual sin and the abandonment by a non-believer. Sadly, professing believers also act as though they have the freedom to divorce and remarry for almost any reason, as long as it makes them feel good. They don't see God's Word as providing a grace-filled objectivity that they need in order to obey the Lord in His power. 
And so I have a lot of people, uh, not necessarily from this church, but from all over. They come in, they say, here's my situation. And I'll say, well, you don't have any grounds for divorce. You're, you're a Christian. Your spouse is a Christian. There's been no sexual sin. There's no abandonment by an unbeliever, on and on and on. And they say, well, yeah, but I'm in love with another person. And I say, I don't care about that because there is an objective standard that says that is wrong. And they say, well, it's like Debbie, the Debbie Boone song, how can something that feels good be wrong? And, and you know, uh, well, it can be because there's an objective truth, God's word, that says your marriage should stay together and that this is sexual sin. This is wrong. And um, people say, well, I'm going to go with my gut. This is how I feel. And so um, that's what we're talking about this morning, an objective truth that you can live your life by. We expect the world to redefine marriage and to counsel divorce. We're right in preaching to the world about the sanctity of marriage, but we ought to do so from a strong position with regards to our own obedience to God's word. Then in verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no human king. No man sat on the throne ruling the tribes. There would be one day. God spoke of them having a king in Deuteronomy, and he outlined his qualifications. Their current lack of a human king was no excuse because God was their king. Micah had all the governance he needed from the word of God. It might be bumper sticker theology, but you've seen it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. It's, if that's too juvenile for you, here's how a scholar put it. Our faith is grounded in the conviction that God has spoken and his word is objective truth. What he has given us is absolute and unshakable and it is the truth by which all other truth claims must be measured. If you have children in the home, you probably have a wall with lines on it where you measure their physical height at different ages. The Bible is a measuring tool. With it, you measure your behavior. God's objective truth is for his glory and for your good. Always go with objectivity, not your subjective feelings. Feelings are real, don't get me wrong. I understand when a person tells me I'm in love with another person but it doesn't make it right. It's still wrong because God has an objective truth. Subjective Christianity may not make ephods and shrines and carved images anymore, but the spirit behind it is just as heretical. No one believed that as you submit to God's objective truth, he knows the plans he has for you and they are plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Now, verses 7 through 13, what does your household of faith reveal about who is king? One of the names for the church on earth is the household of faith. That comes from Galatians 6.10. We're also told you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, 1 Timothy 3.15. Also, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, Ephesians 2.19. It's the Lord's household. We are the family of believers who occupy it. We are the stewards and the servants who minister to one another in it. Our behavior communicates something about who we really believe the king is. Here's an example. In the church in Corinth, in that household of faith, the believers gathered every Sunday evening and they had a potluck that was followed by their communion service. The potluck was called the love feast. 